Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 344th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Brad Barrett. Brad is the managing director and partner of One Capital Management, an independent RIA based in Westlake Village, California, with locations across the country that oversees $5.3 billion in asset center management for more than 2,000 client households. What's unique about Brad, though, is how he helped his large multi-billion dollar firm develop what they call business segments, which are essentially multiple niche specializations, each with their own advisor, leader, and team, but all built on their centralized investment management process and similar private wealth target clientele, but done in a manner that allows the firm and each of its advisor teams to differentiate themselves and create new channels of direct clients to help scale and grow the firm organically. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Brad developed their business segments, such as fire and police, sports and entertainment, and cross-border Canadians, helping Brad and the firm scale and grow because they could leverage having their advisor team seen as specialized experts in multiple different channels, but without needing to fully commit the whole firm to just one. How Brad and his firm have further accelerated their growth by seeking out and acquiring niche practices to turn into business segments for one capital, which means they pay even higher multiples for niche practices than to acquire just a profitable generalist financial advisor. And how Brad has built out his firm's media department by hosting radio programs and podcasts and YouTube videos focusing on a specific topic each week that affects one of their business segment clientele, and then adjusting the length and depth of the conversation to fit each of the various media channels that he's using. We also talk about how One Capital Management began offering their investment management services as a sub-advisory for other advisors, which created the centralized scale that then inspired the firm to delve deeper into business segments to better facilitate the distribution of those investment strategies. How Brad and his partners regularly evaluate the firm's business segments to both ensure that they're continually providing the services their clients want and need and ensuring that they can continue to profitably grow and scale the business segments further. And how Brad and his firm structure their advisor compensation splits based on the overall profitability targets for each business segment. And be certain to listen to the end where Brad shares how he learned the hard way that finding the right partners in business diverse is critically important after he and his firm worked on an eight-month project to create a new vertical for the firm only to find the person they partnered with was just using the position to leverage for a better job offer elsewhere. How Brad wishes that he realized in the early stages of career the benefits of going narrow and deep with specializations because he now understands that his fear of limiting himself, in fact, ended up generating greater opportunities to pursue organic growth. And why Brad feels that it's important for younger, newer advisors to set the expectation that it could take as long as 10 years to really be at a place where they're no longer treading water and feeling good about their practice, but not to be discouraged by that and instead continually push to find the right firm and the right opportunities for them so that they can build the successful career and get to that long-term level of advisor happiness and financial success. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Brad Barrett. Welcome, Brad Barrett, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate having me on. I, I appreciate you joining us. And, and what I think is going to be a really interesting conversation today around what happens when we, we kind of get interested or have an opportunity to form some kind of a specialization or niche or focus area, but we live within a bigger firm that's like 
growing in lots of ways and doing other things and and bringing on other advisors who are interested in other endeavors and like you have legacy clients and acquisitions of other deals and just the you know, it's one thing to try to say well I'm an advisor who owns my firm and I want to you know like plant my flag here and say this is my thing right and I know just the dynamics are very different when you're trying to do that in the context of a larger firm and so you've lived that journey of being in a firm that's now grown very, very large to many billions of dollars and and living that, like, how do you live a specialization within a large firm? And so I'm just, I'm, I'm looking forward to having that conversation, say, and understanding how that journey has evolved for you over the past decade. Yeah, I, I am too. Obviously, there's a lot to, lot to share there. You know, I think any advisor out there listening knows there's stories behind the scenes. And um, obviously with our, our specialties, we, we've, gotten into what we call our business segments. Um, there's a lot to dissect there for sure. So I'm excited as well. Very cool. So I, I think to get us started, w- just share with us the details of the firm as it exists today. Like, let's just start by understanding the the advisory business as it exists now. Sure. Um, the name of the firm is One Capital Management. Uh, we are registered investment advisor, RIA. Uh, we're headquartered here in Westlake Village, California, which is about 30 miles north of Los Angeles. Um, we currently sit around 5.3 billion in assets. Um, we have offices in Santa Barbara, San Francisco, Newport Beach, our headquarters here in Westlake Village. And then we have a um, smaller office in Kansas City, as well as uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. And one actual office we'll talk about up in um, Toronto for our Canadian assets, which is also unique at a firm like ours. But um, that's kind of the breakdown from a location standpoint, brick and mortar, if you will, along with our advisory and staff, uh, you know, it totals are right around 90 right now, which is um, been a growth trajectory. You know, firm was, believe it or not, born actually on September 11th, 2001. Now, for obvious reasons, we had to move the signing date for articles of incorporation back a few days, as you can imagine. But uh, interesting little tidbit there. So you know, from a formation standpoint, you know, just over, you know, right on 22 years and uh, still going strong. All the same members who started it are here. You know, it's like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, but still making music. And um, it's been a fun ride. And so so 5.3 billion of AUM, mm-hmm. total team of 90 people, offices, it sounds like mostly around all of the various suburbs of Los Angeles because you've got yeah, like, all the main areas. You've we got, try a, to, you you got know, a big sprawl, right? Like one suburb yeah. to another is like one major city to another in a lot of other parts of the country. Yeah. Uh, and true. then a couple of offices in, in, in other discrete locations. Yeah. So 90 team members, how many, how many clients is this? A little over 2000, a little okay. over 2000. And so, by, by that uh, households. Sure. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if I just sort of do rough math, right, like five five plus billion dollars, a little over two thousand client households, like average household, you end out in a two and a half million per household range. I'm I'm gonna yeah guess roughly. though you've got you've got some barbelling as it were, like some some big numbers at both extremes, and not necessarily we, everybody. We absolutely do. The middle. Um, we absolutely do for different reasons. Um, one of it happens to be we have some different business segments that has to do with sub-advisory and smaller account platforms. We actually manage two ETFs uh, up in Canada on the TSX, which comprises some of those a- AUM numbers. And obviously, the barbelling has to do with a couple, one or two um, ultra high net worth clientele. But we we tend to believe we're right in that core millionaire area of one to two. 
is you know our service level but because of our business segments and our acquisitions and also our our organic talent we're able to kind of focus on different niches and serve different people as i'm sure we'll, we'll talk about but um yeah so so now help us understand a little bit more about i guess as you're terming them business segments mm -hmm. so so what are uh, what are business segments in the one capital world i guess i'm wondering both like what are the business segments and then just Literally, like, what does a business segment sure. mean, you know, I, mean in it, your world? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a term we've used. It's what if you go on our website at onecapital.com, you'll see it right there as a business segment. It's just okay. our um, breakdown of the clients that we serve. Another way to say it is our niche practices. And th there's a couple of them that we focus on. Um, you know, the, the main one, the main umbrella, to, to be completely clear here, is private wealth advisory services. And we want to do that in the right way. Simple and elegant is a saying we have here at One Capital Management for each different type of clientele. And so one of them might be like, for example, our first responders. Um, I happen to oversee that business segment or niche environment just due to some relationships I have out here in the LA area uh, with our Los Angeles City Fire and Police Department. So focusing on the, the, the specifics within that clientele and their needs and then another business segment we have is sports and entertainment. Um, so we actually specialize in the National Hockey League and Major League Baseball. So those are our two, two of the main four, I guess I would say, major sports. And that's headed up um, by an advisor, a managing director of ours, a guy named Chris Moynes, who is in our Toronto office. Um, so we, we have some different segments there along with our family office group, which is really catered uh, to our, our high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals. Um, and then we also have different segments with regards to, I almost want to call them sub segments, if you will, like our retirement plan solutions platform, which focuses essentially largely on business owners and bridging the gap between you know the owners um, who, who own the business or represent the business and their personal assets. So incorporating qualified assets, ERISA-governed ERISA planning um, in those environments. So, And then everything down to even our insurance um, side of things, which is just focusing on the core needs of the private wealth family, if you will, within those needs. So we break it down from niche, I guess, to answer your direct question, it would be more of what we call niche practices. And then our role as One Capital, as we grew, was being able to grow or acquire and find the right people to be the person for us at One Capital to run that business segment, right? The person who has experience, that's their entire, where they want to go with their career, their entire focus, their background is in those uh, different environments. And so we just believe in the culture as we built a firm, um, you know, hiring the right people has a lot to do with the success we're going to have in any one of those segments. So I'm, I'm, I'm struck by that because I want to make sure I heard that correctly. So from, from your firm's perspective, as a large firm that serves a lot of different clients, a lot of different segments, you're like the appeal for you from a growth or hiring, or I guess even acquisition perspective is you, you want firms that or advisors who are more specialized and focused because you want to be able to bring them in and have them grow even further in that segment under your broader umbrella with your resources and, and what you bring to the table. But because yeah. I know for the perception I find for some advisors is something the effect of, well, if I specialize, then I'm going to lose my opportunities to sell yeah. or exit from this business in the future. Because like, if I Whatever, you know, if I specialize in airline pilots, I can only sell to another firm that specializes in airline pilots. And there's only a couple of those out there. So I'm really shrinking my my market of opportunity in the future. Yeah. So I'm 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 struck by what I think I'm hearing from you is, is like 
no, 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 you'd actually prefer to find those types of advisory firms to, I guess, like those types of advisors to hire or those types of firms to acquire because you like adding specialized segments over time. We do. And I don't know that, you know, if I'm being completely candid, I think if you roll the tape back 22 years, I'm not sure that's how it started from a business pro forma initiative, like all businesses, right? But I think over time as it involved, one one core thing that I know we have kept here at the firm uh, was this notion, and, and I think as we look back to our successes, and I'll speak to this here, is being entrepreneurial and opportunistic. And I think through those two lenses, we were able to see, we never really said no, we said, let's take a good look at it, right? And that's always been our approach. Something I share as an advisor coming in you know, 13 years ago uh, to join the core group here, when we were just eight, nine people, and really seeing that, that it was, if you had a good idea and there was a, there was a, um, a, a subsect of individuals we can serve in the right way, we were going to attack it because it made sense both from a business standpoint, but also ultimately from a client servicing standpoint. So I think where we stand today, I, we, I would say that it, it's really, it, it's a cool thing for us to say that we actually enjoy someone who has a niche because I, me, me personally, I'll just show us as a partner here, like, I like the concept, and I think for anyone out there, and I've gone through this, by the way, personally with my own practice, being an advisor within first responders in particular, worrying about, am I getting you know, too specific, and am I not you know, open to referrals outside of a first responder world? And the reality is, I'm not. I, I get referrals, and I have clients outside of the first responder world, but I've realized that success actually comes in the concept, which I'm sure you've talked to guys about, Michael, with the whole narrow and deep, Right. You go very specific and you go very deep into that, that world. And I've seen successes in our business over time with that. I mean, our sports and entertainment managing director and our advisor, that's all he focuses on. And he's created a heck of a practice in doing that. And same with our first responders. I mean, we've, we've created a, a great practice, a great brand around that going narrow and deep. And I think that anyone out there is kind of looking at that. We as a firm, we do love that. I think there's a we're able to support that. I think some firms, some larger firms, you know, they're more looking to be broad stroked, you know, anyone and everybody kind of thing, which I understand has its play from a growth perspective, an AUM perspective, you know, but for us, if we can really get specific and then help an advisor grow within their field of interest, like you mentioned, for example, pilots as a great example, right? Well, why wouldn't we go narrow and deep and help support that practice and if anyone's out there worried that they're going to limit their opportunities for you know acquisition or succession plans or things like that, I'd love to be able to share that. I think I'm sure we're not alone in this, but there are definitely firms out there that, and I would seek those that want to partner with you on that. Um, and I would avoid the ones that don't because obviously that's not something they want to focus on, right? So I'm curious to hear more just how the you know how the the mindset evolved or the perspective evolved on in this because as you noted like we didn't necessarily start with oh you know 15 years ago 20 years ago we decided together because we wanted to make like the multi-niche segment firm right. in the future and we've been executing on it since september 13th of 2001 because we can launch on 9-11 right it is as you said like this it's what you found or learned over time so i guess this i'm i'm curious to hear more of like what what were the like moments or takeaways or like the the transitions, the things that happened that said, oh wait, there's something here. Like we wanna we wanna lean into this approach further. Yeah, you know, in answering that, I think the one thing I know when we when we step back early on in One Capital, we, we wanted to go 
we knew one thing, which was was really twofold, right? One thing twofold, right? Pun intended, I guess. Right? It was was to build uh, was the one to build a channel with direct clients. That was obviously we wanted to be an advisor, be a private wealth, you know, house. But we also realized through some relationships early on that I think helped us get to where we are today that there is successes to be made in other areas and. Our first foyer, if you will, into we'll call it business segments or niche plays was actually um, offering our wealth management services with a proprietary investment solution around private client portfolio management to other advisors, to other broker dealers and platforms. So we actually offered our services up as a sub-advisory relationship through broker dealer relationships, both in the US and in Canada. But in looking back, that's, I think, bore the idea, if you will, around being able to, you know, offer what we do as a core through more unique channels and then use that. I mean, ultimately, that helped us scale and 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 the cash flow really in order for us to circle back to our core, which is building a, a private wealth, you know, organic, you know, financial advisory business. And I think when we fast forward 15, 20 years, to your point, that's where all of a sudden we started growing. I came in couple of years, you know, after the inception and 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 brought in the first responder chassis. And I think that was kind of our first big outside of the sub-advisory niche, if you will, or sub-advisory platform was kind of our big focus point. And I think we just had to see that play out. We had to see that become successful. Like anyone who's entrepreneurial and is going to go and invest in something or put your time into a business, you want to see its success before you then go and branch out. And so first responder platform came first. Then we kind of had the, well, we did have the sports and entertainment chassis. We had a cross, um, cross border advanced planning. I didn't even mention that one earlier, but that came right after the sports and entertainment chassis. We have a, a Canadian advisor who actually sold his practice up in Toronto and moved down to the States knowing nobody and built a hundred hundred fifty million million practice here in the past 10 years, just by the support of a firm like ours and offering services to cross-border uh, U.S. citizens in Canada, Canada and U.S. and vice versa, snowbirds, you, you name it. We're one of the main players in that space. And a guy named Wayne Baxter in our office um, has really been successful in that camp. So the timeline, what I mentioned is early on wins to your question was really more in quite complete canonist. It was about cash flow. It was about surviving. You know, we knew we wanted to build a private wealth platform and be financial advisors. We knew that. But in order to scale and to add some cash flow, we had the bright idea and and, and Don McDonald, our founder, Pat Bowen, um, Steve Cowley, Dan Stridsberg, the four main guys when they were here early on, had this vision of, of offering, again, our services sub-advisory to provide cash flow to then go back and build the private, private client business. Now, obviously, fast forward six, seven years, you got 08, 09 happening, reshapes a lot of things, go back to the drawing board. And, you know, two years after that, enter me. And that's where the business segments kind of came around as the idea. And then everything else kind of ensued from there. So, so almost this environment of, so as I guess it sounds like the, the original core was more pure on the portfolio investment management end. Like that was actually the first thing that got built and scaled. And so. And that to this day is still something we hold to be our central, you know, Mm-hmm. you know, everything, you know, we're, we're unique in the sense we don't, we don't outsource. We, we have an entire, I mean, when I first came in here with Steve Cowley as our chief investment officer, we had Dan Stridsberg running portfolio operations, if you will, which is basically kind of working with Steve and like one portfolio manager. 
And we all kind of served on the investment committee. We all had our input, but it was mostly them. That team's now grown to probably 12 or 15 people all in-house. You know, we don't sub out. We do everything individual, you know, stocks, bonds, ETFs we use through that. We have one or two mutual funds for certain plays within the portfolio. But the portfolio management for us has always been the central think tank of how we are going to serve our clients to the best of our abilities. Add to that the client experience, which is something we we build the simple and elegant approach to. If we focus on those two things and do them to the best of our abilities, any segment, any clientele we would serve, we feel from our you know generation there would would allow it to be you know served in how putting our brand on it, if you will. So the investments becomes the sort of scalable core. Yep. And your expression of client experience that's very focused and relevant to the individual clients starts to show up in the business segments of, well, how do we make a great experience for all these different client types? The answer is, well, we make a segment for like each of these client types, and then we get really deep on the advice and client experience for that segment, Exactly, all of which maps back to a centralized investment core. You know, and exactly, and there's so many examples of this. I mean, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head, but you know, imagine an advisor out there who has a relationship with a buddy. And I had this. I, I grew up playing hockey as well, and I have plenty of friends who actually went pro. And imagine if that person came to me and said, "Hey, Brad, I just signed a contract with an NHL team. I've known you forever. I played hockey with you in juniors. Like, would you mind managing my money?" Now, as an advisor, I can serve him well, but understanding the nuances within that specific world of an athlete is a very tailored approach. I can provide the same investment management services. We can do that. But knowing the knowledge of the taxes, where he's living, his US versus Canadian citizenship, you know, just all the things that come around that, the way they get paid, which is typically from October to like May versus summertime, obviously contract negotiations, relationship management with business managers and agents. I mean, there's a lot in that world yeah. as one example, right? Yep. So Having a guy like Chris Moynes, for example, who's our managing director in that space, which is that's all he lives and breathes, that to us made a lot of sense. It's like the old Reagan model. It's right, delegate and remove yourself kind of thing. And and to us, that made sense. And and the same thing in, for example, a, a guy who's a Canadian citizen who's living down here in the US for, he's a CEO or a president of a large company. I mean, Wayne is a great person to have that because he understands the cross-border relationships right. from a tax perspective I and mean, all that. But all of it, the bedrock is, to your point, which I'm, you picked that up completely, is the core services of the investment management and what we're trying to provide here is the ultimate client experience. And yeah, that's how we have always approached it for our clients. So I, so I kind of get like it, it connects the dots for me then on the evolution. So you have like, you know, early stage one of the business, we start doing investment management. We've got some founders with defect expertise mm -hmm. and, and we start getting clients we build a bit of a systematized process there. And so once you've got a systematized investment process, then it's like, well, how else do we like distribute right. these investment strategies that we've made? So yeah. So you start sub-advising for other advisors, right? Kind of the the TAMP SMA world. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you you at some point along the journey built these into a package GTF offering in Canada. So there's a version up there. Yep. And then business segments for you essentially become like these like distribution channels for your investment management that are kind of vertically integrated because you yeah. you, you own your own channel like we're right. not just distributing our investment strategies to first responders like we have a segment that specializes in first responders 
and they can implement client investments with the the centralized core investment strategies that we've built. And then we can hire the best people at doing first responders to make a great first responder client experience with first responder specific advice, because it's hard to differentiate on portfolios amongst first responders, but you can differentiate on advice. Exactly. To and, and to that end, it allows the advisor to be the best self. That's what we feel, right? It allows, if we provide them the tools, the the, the research, the backbone, and, and for us, we not just the investment management, we have our own wealth forecasting team, our own client servicing division, we own our own technologies, we have our own like three or four person technology team. All of that's provided to the advisor to make them the best advisor they want to be in their field. So for me, going into a fire station, for example, I'm able to, exactly to your point, provide the service I know that they need specific to their needs given the fact that I'm using the same platform that an advisor who services athletes or cross-border clients or business owners or high net worth individuals all have the same tools, we're just allowing ourselves to be able to use them in the way that makes sense for that clientele. And that's been a, it's been a success for us. It really has, um, both from a branding standpoint and everything else. I mean, and sort of the, similar to a lot of other advisory firms, you know, there's, I mean, a lot of firms that run on the AUM model, I find kind of live this world of, you know, we don't want to differentiate our offering on the investment side, because then you start living and dying by portfolio performance alone. That gets rough. Exactly. So like we want to we want to differentiate on our advice where the investments is part of the overall service uh, and the thing that we can scale very efficiently. Uh, yeah, like that's, but a lot that's of advice firms that's like we'll lead with financial planning, wealth management, and then also do the portfolio work. You, you guys, to me, it seems like have just sort of taken that one step further to say, no, no, we're actually going to differentiate straight down to advice in very specific business segments because we can market them mm-hmm. even more. And I mean, you can see on your website, like you know, your one capital, and it's one family for the family office, and one sports for the sports offering, and one fire and police. Mm-hmm. For the fire and police offering, like everything is, you know, one from one capital, yep, and and the segment, so you get this continuity of branding and deeper differentiation. Uh, but from the firm end, you're not necessarily pigeonholed into any particular business segment because you've got business segments, plural. Yeah. Yeah. There's just a list on the website. Like here's our fire and police division, here's our sports division, here's our family office division. Yeah. And, you know, a great example actually just happened a couple of weeks ago. There was a client um, who got referred to one of our advisors here uh, just from a from a friend. They went on our website and actually spent a couple minutes looking. And this person happened to actually be a police officer in L.A. retiring. And in, believe it or not, instead of going to the advisor who's referred to, who is a colleague of mine here, his assistant came to me and said, hey, they called in asking for him. But uh, you know, they did some research and they felt that you'd probably be better suited for them. And I did the discovery meeting with them and it 100% did because the language and the specifics of that discovery meeting would have been so different than what he would have done on just a general private client example. So even someone going to our website, which might be is very generic nowadays, actually just recently served its purpose in the sense of if someone were to go to our website, we ultimately over time, we want them to feel like whatever their background is or whatever their needs are, it can be served with the right approach. And you're right. I mean, the, the, the approach we've always taken to, to your point you made earlier has never actually, the, the core of what we do is, is to be proper, properly allocated investment portfolios done in what we feel um, is the right way with a central think tank here, investment committee in-house, so on and so forth. But, the, but it all starts with the discovery process as an advisor. 
And being able to, we, we very rarely and very candidly, we very rarely discuss performance numbers or, or, or out there telling clients we're seeking alpha. We understand that that's our role from a growth, a long money manager. We understand that. But the reality is the, the, the three prongs when it comes to, you know, like the John Bowen model of, of which you know, our founder, Don, is very good friends with, you know, we, we've approached the advanced, the advanced planning, the relationship management and the investment management as the kind of the three legs to that stool. And I think I've always noticed that I, I, any advisor that's out there kind of touting performance, those kind of things, the problem is you're only, you're only as good as yesterday's results. Right, so right, more right. relational. And I think that even speaks more volumes into these niches as we talk to them about that. Because every, you know, you talk to a, f- a fire captain and a captain of a hockey team, for an example, right? Individually speaking, outside of their, you know, careers, they're a human being with the same fears we all have, right? Right. Am I going to have enough money? Do I have enough money to support my family? Will I be? Will I always have enough money? So us addressing those common needs and those threads that we can easily pull between the two, but within their own world, has a lot to do with the success of what I think our you know client retention's been, and ultimately our client relationships have been. So it's it really still to us comes down to advisory and discovery, and and yeah, to your point, the advisory side and allowing the advisor to work within the context of their business segment, <laughs> keeping using that, right? And um, it allows them to thrive. We've seen it. So I, I, your, your story did kind of answer for me one of the things I was wondering as well, which is like, w- what happens when someone in the firm gets a client who fits someone else's business segment? And the answer is like, it, it, it goes out to them. Like you may get more because once you get Establish in your community. Sometimes there's just a flow of referrals that can start coming in. Yeah, but you know, you're you know the police chief that goes to someone else gets sent over to you because you run the business segment for fire and police. That's like that's how it works within the firm. It you know it has, and and it wasn't really something that we set out some big MOU to the entire firm across all the advisors. It's just been we've been lucky, I think, but we've also put a lot of work into who we hire and who we acquire. We've even hired Culture Index and a lot of firms to help us understand who these individuals are, that you know where their where their specialties lie, even the ones that they may not even know. Everything from detail to orientation to organization to you know just all that stuff. And so I think in doing that, we haven't had any issues. And I, and I know that may sound really cliche, but the advisor handing it over to me, he looked at me, he just said, this makes total sense. I want this to happen for the benefit of the client. I've done it multiple times in the past year through our media program, through our YouTube channel and our podcast. Re- oddly, we've had a few people reach out that happen to be Canadian citizens living here in the US. Immediately, I get that discovery note and it's right over to Wayne because that's just his specialty. I can, you know, if we think about it from a selfish standpoint, we don't, again, thankfully, and Luckily, we don't have a lot of the egos here that I, I I know can be out there, which is a beautiful thing, and we're very fortunate for that. So it's just been a it's been a just a common understanding that look, if we can serve the client in the best way, and it makes sense to work with this segment because of some background or some career path that they're in, that's what we're going to do, and it falls under the whole ethos of the firm, which is again the simple and elegant, and ultimately driving the client experience. So so help me understand how this works from. I guess just like a, a a compensation perspective. I mean, I know for a lot of firms, like mm-hmm. it's one thing to say we try to operate as a team and you know send the prospect to whichever uh, whichever advisor or team in the firm is the best fit. But then often that gets bogged down and like 
okay, but like who gets the comp? Do we compensate based on revenue where you lose money if you send it over? Do we have to like pay someone a business development trail? But then if we do that, then it gets bogged down for a while. Like just yeah. I find in practice that gets really messy really quickly in a lot of firms because of the compensation dynamics that that start layering on top. So can I ask like how does like how does advisor and team compensation work in this in this business segments realm and and then how does business development show yeah. up in that context? So I can break that down into into two answers. One, I'm going to give you the one that happened over the past year once or twice with regards to my referrals over to one of our my colleague Wayne who I I think the world of and his in his environment because of that chassis there's certain economics we had to build within our media division which is a whole other topic we can get into right but when you when you focus on that if the average client fee was let's say one and a half percent the way we had to break that down because we as a firm were supporting the the cost of building the radio program the podcast the YouTube channel, all of it, the 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 house, if you will, would be able to keep more coming back because we're putting the money out. So on a one and a half percent management fee, we had one percent going back to the firm, which really only left fifty basis points to whoever's servicing the advisor. In a case like that, how that gets broken down is because I'm the director, if you will, in that camp. I'm the one hosting the podcast, the radios, the YouTube. There was a, an economic structure in there where twenty five basis points would come over to me for revenue share or for working with the client. The other 25 basis points, so again, 1% goes to the house, 25 to the person overseeing the media division, if you will, and then the person servicing advisor or the advisor attached to the client that came in through that channel was 25 basis points, for example. If it happened to be me as both the advisor, I would have the 25 basis points and you know the 25 being the director. But I, I've always said like it also comes down to a, a sustainability standpoint, right? Again, in this case, going to Wayne, it made more sense. So his compensation with 25 basis points. And in that regard, there is a level of servicing for the client that we have to take because Wayne's sitting there going like, I, I love the referral, but I mean, it's significantly less than what I would receive if I were to go out and build the business myself, which makes sense. I think any economic structure you would see in an advisory firm, you should be rewarded heavier, obviously, for if you're the one out there shaking the trees. If it's a firm handing you the business, there's obviously a referral arrangement, and that's been that was roughly ours on that segment. the The other scenario, which was really more a one off, I hate to say it this way, but it wasn't some like massive windfall of a client that the advisor was going like, you know, I missed out on, you know, ten thousand yeah. dollars a year of income in in perpetuity. So it wasn't an issue, so to speak. Um, but I, I think it's something we will always continually talk about at the firm, and we've always one thing I. One thing I love, and I've been here for a long time, you know, half half the life of the the company, and the same stance we've taken when we were seven or eight people is the same stance we've always taken with nineties. We're always going to do the right thing, which I know again sounds super cliche, but I've seen it behind closed doors play out more times than not. I mean, Pat Bowen, our president, my my business partner, he, he might be one of the most you know integrity driven guys I've ever seen. I mean, we will do the right thing almost to a fault in a way whether it's for the client or for the advisors. And so we always find a common ground if there are any issues. And thus far, we haven't had any. So I, I really can't specifically answer the economics on that one. But again, it wasn't some some huge windfall where we, you know, right, right. yeah. So you know, if, if we have a structure where someone's doing a concerted business development effort, you know, we're, we're going to compensate the business development effort and channels. So that's what's yeah. happening for your media offering. Whereas 
you know, look, like if we just get the one off client, we can just sort of be a collegial environment. Like every now and then I'll get one for you. Every now and then you'll get one for me. It pretty much and is how like it's been. this should mostly average out well enough that we can just play well in the sandbox if you've got a good culture around that in the first place. Exactly. And our culture's always been one for like kind of check your ego. And I always said, be look, look, check your heart for a second. I'm not saying, look, you deserve it, but but you're not, but you have to understand like, is it ego driven or is it actually money driven? And if it's money driven, I would say we need to kind of build the practice elsewhere instead of relying on this one referral, you know, and, and worrying about it. But yeah, being collegiate about it, I think is the approach we've taken because it hasn't been so much to where it was inundating for us. So, so I'm struck by just some of the, the, the breakdown of the numbers that you had there and appreciate the sharing. So, yeah. so as I'm thinking at a high level, if a client fee is one and a half percent, basically you've got 1% to the firm and a half a percent to like the advisor pool. So basically like advisor comp is about a third of revenue on, on average. That's just on the media division, which is about three to four years old. Okay. Because of the, the, because of the, the money output ahead of time. Right. And me and Pat, particularly who, who kind of started this division together, we got together and I said, look, the only way we can really do this, if one capital is putting out the money to build this channel over time, you know, we have to have some compensation that makes more sense. And we, and we kind of, you know, pulled the advisors around and kind of said, look, if, if, if we get some referrals from our, you know, our seminars, our, our, um, I hate calling them seminars, workshops, dinner workshops, radio, you know, podcasts, YouTube, you know, you have to understand these are hopefully going to be great clients coming in, but this was essentially paid for by the firm. So that economic breakdown is there. Other than that, our private wealth platform, you know, is really about, we've always believed in the partnering with the advisors. So we find the compensation structure relative to their business environment. Um, again, back to the segments thing, because again, even fees are different in certain areas. Right. Like what, what like you're going to charge in example, fire and police that has a lot of mass affluent is going to be a different fee schedule than what you do with, you know, the private family office Exactly. And that has to do with varying factors, whether it's AUM services offered, because there's more services, let's say in the sports entertainment, we're doing things like they're billing and just other things that we're not doing. So it, it varies, right? And so we also want to come to be a partner with our advisors to help them service again, their clientele the best way. You know, one of the things in the athlete space in particular is we know we're always going to be competing in the at least the you know, um, optics is reality world of agents fees and business management fees, which by the way, have nothing to do with us. Right. But you know, that's a very common 1% environment there. And so it's a, it's a hard part for us to go in and charge, you know, 1.75 or 1.5, even though that's a very valid management fee for what we are providing for that client mm -hmm. relative to our space, but it doesn't really compare to their world because they're like, well, that seems really expensive compared to what I'm getting with say a business manager or an agent. Again, apples and oranges, but that's the world we have to play in sometimes. So there's a lot of variances we have to take in that environment. So, yeah. so do you effectively end up with like different fee schedules for each business segment because they're different enough in their their worlds and the scope of services and just like the typical affluence of the yeah. clientele that like you end up needing slightly different fee schedules for each? I think generally speaking, yes. I mean, we try to keep it you know, we, we also, again, along with research and platform and everything we offer, a part of it's also practice management work. Pat's one of our president here. He's actually really great with that, with our advisors, kind of helping them work through what the advisor thinks is the right approach. And even down to something like your question here, which is a great one regarding a tiered approach, flat fee, you know, just overall actual amount. 
you know, so we, we work through with them. We, we try to get to a common thread. So our billing team doesn't get, you know, has like 500 yeah. different, you know, right. I mean, it could be, you know, tumultuous. Right. But again, we will do the work as always if it's the right thing for the client. So I think workshopping it through, and that's the beauty of an advisor here, we have the team to talk to with tons of experience in multiple different, again, business segments, working through experience related to kind of what they think might be the right approach. And it might end up being right, but it's worth talking out and figuring out what makes the most sense. So I'm, I'm going to presume then that means if fee schedules start varying by segments and and, and um, service scope starts varying by segment, that just ultimately like the the nature of advisor comp or like the percentages of revenue or, or, or equivalents also just have to get set by business segment because the economics are just different from one segment to the next. Yes. Um, we obviously run, you know, margins and pro formas on each of the businesses, because obviously as a business owners, we have to be obviously, you know, creating some sort of margin that that's do profitable. Do that? Like, do you literally run, like, does oh, yeah. your financials have a I guess like a segmentation, no, no pun intended, like a segmentation by segment to actually say like, oh, yes. okay, how profitable is this advisor's segment or this advisory team's segment? How profitable is this segment? Absolutely. I think, I think anyone listening here, organi- when, you, when you build something that what we've built, organization is key. And so seeing your verticals, if you will, business segments, verticals, niches, whatever you want to call it, right? You have to silo them out and make sure that what we are, and, and now grand, you have to roll those all up into the general EBITDA of the firm. And you're going to, and that's how you get to the kind of the economics of each one of them. But absolutely, we want to know, I mean, like, for example, I mean, just simple stuff, right? Like the first responder platform doesn't require a whole lot of travel. Our, our sports and entertainment does. So obviously right. the OPEX is a lot higher over there, right? So that's a very simple example of just some nuances that we have to kind of segregate and make sure we understand where the profitability lies ultimately into, is this a sustainable model for us? Because I mean, end of the day, if we are going to go and help an advisor and build an advisory group out of a specific niche, we want that advisor to succeed and they can succeed if they're profitable. Cause that's how you stay in business, right? That's right. just business 101. I think it's a lot of TLC <laughs> from, you know, us as partners, particularly Pat Bowen, our president, who really, you know, takes a hard interest in this to make sure it's uh, compensatory to all advisors. Like I have never felt in the 13 years I've been here that my practice, whether or not it's profitable, more or less profitable, that I don't have uh, the same contract, if you will, with another advisor. It's it's really the world that we want to play in is making sure that you are succeeding in your world relative to, you know, what you want to be doing for your clients. So there's not like someone's getting 80% of the revenue and I'm getting 30 you know, it has to, it's really, we, we break it down and share with them that we want to partner with them and make sure like it, it, across the board, it works out for everybody so that there's not some, because you don't want, the one thing you don't want is say, oh, I want to do airline pilots, but this guy over here doing whatever athletes, let's just say, is making two times the money because his contract better. Like, well, I'm just going to ditch this and go over there. Like you don't want to incentivize right. an advisor to leave of a love and a focus. You know what I mean? Because yeah. Those clients are also really deserving of the services. I always felt like, you know, business can always be what it is. But if we make it moral, which it should be, filled with integrity, you can able to provide the services for all the different clients that need it. You can even go down to, if you scale it right, which we feel like we've done, we can go down to serving a client who might only have, you know, a quarter million dollars or $100,000 because of their, where they're at. They might be a younger first responder who's growing and contributing and their dollar cost averaging and so we're able to take that approach and 
leave it to the advisors to make the decision on whether or not that's a client that they can serve and and build up economically. So is there a like standard targets that you try to aim for as you do financials by segment and financials overall? I mean, like, do you target a a certain profit margin at the firm level or like a certain percentage of revenue to advisor comp or a certain percentage of revenue to overhead? Like how do you I would, how do you yeah, yeah, how do you guys do this? Great, great question. I think the easiest answer for me to share there is we we definitely try to target a 30% margin. That's our our goal. Okay. Um, of like overall EBITDA, overall. like rolled up to the firm yep. at the top level. Yep, overall. And so our job is, and, and that's where the the you know, a guy like Pat who's really sits on the seat there for our advisors is his role as a partner here. He he's incredible at it. And we've, you know, so that's been a big focus of ours. Yeah. I mean, we might have some at 22, some at 35, you know, you know, the, the name of the sure. game, but the idea is a roll up for the firm. We try to target a 30% profit margin. And, you know, you frame this a lot around like the firm's trying to partner with its advisors. So, uh, am I reading into that, that the means like advisors do tend to have some sort of revenue based compensation, whereas they grow their segment their, you know, their comp is growing directly as opposed to like, no, no, they get salaries, but hopefully you get it back on the profits end if you're a partner. Like how does yeah, that, it's basically you know, comp through profits versus comp through salary versus yeah. comp through like revenue based. Yep. Uh, we, I mean, we want that old school model when we partner. I mean, basically our contracts for lack of, a, I mean, we don't get wrapped up in these numbers necessarily, but think of it like a 50, 50 partnership. Like we will provide the house, the platform, the compliance, just everything, you know, the client experience, the servicing associates, the portfolio management team, the wealth forecast team, the technology, everything. We want to partner with you with that so that any assets you bring in, you know, clear as day, if it's a $10 million a year guy or woman doing it, then they know very clearly if whatever they charge, just think of it like 50-50. Now, that's not the exact numbers, but that's the best way I can describe the partnership sure. we're going into here. And so, yeah, it's a revenue-based model. We want them to be able to feel like they can go and earn with, theoretically, the sky's the limit along with the support. And we will then, like I'm a great example. Over time, as my practice has grown, I, I oversee probably nearly, between all of the business segments that I've that I worked through over the many years I've been here, somewhere around a quarter billion dollars or so that I oversee personally here at the firm. And that's part of it's my own personal private wealth practice. Part of it's the sub-advisory arrangement that I have worked with some relationships in our Kansas area through broker dealers. So it's just there's different revenue models within each of those. And as the my practice and particularly grew as the AUM grew as the revenue grew, my support also needed to grow. So adding my own direct associate, which is different than having, you know, maybe a junior associate. Um, there's just different. So we we are also adaptive to, you know, the growth of the advisor and what the needs are for the practice. But it is revenue based in the sense that we want them to be very clear that if you're bringing a client in and you're going to charge them, you know, on average one and a half, you know, you should be around. I mean, this again, not wrapped up in the specific numbers, but in my example, you know, you know, you're getting 75 basis points on that. And so if you want to go make, you know, another $75,000 next year, go bring on another $10 million. And that's a really way we partner with them to create their own business. And then you, you started getting towards it uh, in that discussion as well. But you know, when, when they get to the point where now they need more resources, because they're they're growing they're, they need mm -hmm. staff support, team support, like, does that does that come from the you know the firm's fifty percent? Does that come from their fifty percent? Is that like 
negotiated yeah. and kind of advisor specific for what's going on. Yeah, it's time. a great question. It's it's very advisor specific, I would say. I mean, again, going back to your original question too, it it goes back to the pro forma we might be running on that advisor's practice, seeing where the margin is, seeing where the wiggle room might be. We 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 want to partner with them. We want to help with them for sure. So, you know, if if it's a if it's if that niche to be able to grow and expand in that, we need the extra service. It's just an op. It's just a, you know, we come to add it together. So some of it might be part advisor comp, part firm compensation. You know, there's just different ways we can approach that. So it's it's definitely more advisor specific. But it goes back to the pro forma you mentioned and how we run each verticals. You know, revenue management, if you will. So. So take me back a moment for just business segments and and some of the sort of the firm level structure. Well, I guess my first question is where like where did the name business segments come from? I mean, I'm going to assume like someone spent some time to say like <laughs> is it going to be business segments or specializations or practice areas or like all the other right. words that can exist for this. So I'm just curious like how how do you land on you know, business segments do you know it's funny you ask that question because uh, the amount of time we've been talking so far the amount of times we've said that that might be the most i've ever said those two words together okay. even knowing that that's what we call it so we don't here internally it's not it's, those are that's not a vernacular we use commonly daily let's put okay it that way. so what's so what's the internal vernacular uh practices practices um, okay. you know my practice wayne's practice chris's practice okay Everybody knows in practice, like when you say Wayne's practice, what you mean is the cross-border Canadian offering. And when Correct. you say Brad's practice, everybody knows that means fire and police. Exactly. Exactly. So I guess it's an interesting note in context. Like the firm has multiple niches, multiple business segments. Like as an advisor, you don't. Like you have your segment or you're on Brad's team with that segment or Wayne's team with with yeah, his segment. I, like advisors yes. are typically in a segment. One capital has multiple. Correct. And I would say though, I mean, you know, take me for example, like being my segment, if you will, or my practice is largely around first responders, but not entirely. So even some advisors have entire businesses around one segment. There are other advisors who, you know, Wayne's a great example too. Like he has clients that have nothing to do with Canada, just the same. But he also happens to have a specialty in that world. So that's a segment that he is the lead advisor in and is our guy in. You know, so for you, me, you, just, you may get some clients that don't perfectly fit your segment because if we're out there and we build our presence, some stuff comes in. But yeah. nominally, I'm not, I'm not advertising myself in multiple segments. I don't go out there and say, like, I'm doing Canadian and fire and police. Yeah, I go exactly. out there and say I'm doing fire and police, but you know sometimes people just like me and want to work with me, so I get some other folks as well. Yeah, and I, I think you know when we talk about branding and marketing, I mean sometimes the branding and marketing happen to be within the own your their own like COI world, like their center of influence, right? right? So that's just their world that they are known for, whether it's in a, in a, a business management system or a, or a you know a provisors group or something like that, that the advisor might be in, they might know him as a private wealth advisor who also happens to be very you know specific in this one area. But outside of that, a referral that he might've gotten from another client may have nothing to do with that business segment. And I think it just depends, you know, of what that is. And, you know, we, we talk, we've been talking a lot about, you know, specific niches and segments and practices you know, there are, I feel, and I think we feel as a firm, there's ones that have uniquenesses to them that do deserve to be tailored. We've mentioned a couple, first responders, athletes, uh, you know, 
cross-border clients. I'd even put teachers inside of there with 403B plans. I and mean, there's specifics to those kind of realms. Then there's another big bad world of just, you know, everybody else, right? Which they they are also very, but like someone who works for XYZ company, as doesn't matter what their role is, versus ABC company, you know, other than that company being a, a public company versus a private company, which there's some nuances there with stock options, IOUs, things like that. You know, there's the nuances of an advisor just understanding the 401k world and just overall planning that can be served plenty, plenty good, right? There's nothing specific there that has to have an extra level of branding or marketing or expertise to. Um, you know, again, as long as you're a credentialed fiduciary experienced advisor, you can work with that that clientele. So. Yeah, it's 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 a it's not. We have these segments because it's a focus of ours, and we've done again the whole concept of narrow and deep. We we feel that that's worked well for us, um, but it doesn't mean that we, that's our only focus. We do like to be diversified, right? So, um, but I guess that's reflected in some of the marketing that the advisors have the segments and then start I guess, bu- building their brand and their COI networks and the rest yeah. around their particular domain, right? Like. Uh, uh, you know, this the sports team, I'm sure, spends a lot of time going to networking events with other people in the sports world that no yeah. one would really go to if you that's not your world, but that's a great place to be when that when that is no, your and, world. And and we all know this advisors, everyone listening here. I mean, we know that the world we tend to play in the sandbox that we're in based on our what we do, I mean, it all right. tends to revolve around some area of interest or some area of expertise. So we're labeling this as a business segment, right? Or a niche or a practice or whatever it is. But I mean you know, that's very common, even for everybody. We just, we just kind of took it the hyper level of saying that these are specific areas we wanted to really approach for various reasons. And um, it's been a, it's been a success for us, for sure. So then you've got marketing that happens by the advisors within their practices. And then you've got what you mentioned earlier, this like media division or I guess as I'm interpreting it, basically like a firm level marketing effort to generate clients directly from the firm as opposed to just air quotes, like just what the practices develop for themselves and within their uh, within their segments. Yeah, it was. Um, yes, it, uh, uh, in I'll tell you the the try to make this as short as possible. But about four years ago, I I don't know I, I something kind of spawned on me and I had a conversation in one of our partners meetings and I went to the guys and I was just like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I was, I was tired of us being the unknown expert, you know? And I think anyone out there listening right now, you think about that, right? I mean, how many people do you see on social media now or YouTube in their twenties talking about, you know, do this with your finances and you'll be successful. Yes, the, like, the rise no of the like TikTok finfluencer yeah. that like, really this doesn't seem to actually know all that much about finance. Exactly. And I, and I just started getting, and, and mind you, you should understand, like I'm, I'm the youngest partner here at the firm by like 15 years. So in my generation, this is a little bit more like I see it more just because it's more relevant in my generation, I guess, um, especially with things like social media. Right. And, and I, it was, it's the same difference. Like someone who's 25 years old telling you to, you know, do these workouts three times a week and you'll be fine. I'm like, dude, call me when you're 40 and have two kids, then we'll talk. You know what I mean? It's the same thing, you know, in the, in the financial services world, it's like, this guy has no experience, no knowledge, no nothing. And yet there's a lot of people. Anyways, that was the ethos of the start of me wanting to say, Hey, look, I know this is different for us. And we've, we don't, from a, from a completely open perspective, like we don't have to do this monetarily to like succeed as a firm or 
keep ourselves afloat by any means. This was purely an investment. But I approached them and said, look, I really want to start a podcast. I think that's a really good platform for us. I was listening to your podcast. I know that's a great medium out there. And and, um, we we, we went down that endeavor. So we started the the Make Your Money Matter podcast um, around just audio version of just sharing weekly uh, planning topics, investment ideas from a firm, from us, right? And But interestingly enough, in the same time period we started that podcast for this media division, if you will, at the same time, I also created a, a podcast almost before that that was called Pension Attention. So this actually speaks to, I wanted to double down on the narrow and deep theory, if you will, which is I wanted to create a podcast specific to first responders. And for anyone out there who works with first responders, you know that they're their, their holy grail is their pension. And it's a beautiful thing, and it should be. Mm-hmm. So I literally titled it Pension Attention. Yep. And to this day, if you look at our stats, four years later, three, four years later, it is the number one listened to podcast here at our firm. And um, the, not, the, the, the narrow, so like the, narrow the one the that's only for yes. fire and police has yep. more re- has more listeners than the one for like every human being in the country. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, that's a great example you know, as of the past couple of years, it just speaks to the volume of if you go narrow and deep and you really focus on it, you know, there's wins to be had. Not only is it the most viewed or opened and listened to when we look at it from our MailChimp stats, but it's also, uh, I've actually seen direct clients from it. I probably received 10 to 12 uh, referrals or call-ins from that show for over the past couple of years each year. So it's been a very successful podcast for us. Again, that's the niche play. Now, I don't think this is like, I, I think it makes sense if you think about it, because when you when you, when you you cast a net that's really wide, it's going to be harder to get traction. I think one of the things about going narrow and deep is you immediately have traction, right? You're speaking to directly to an audience, so you can create relatability, vulnerability. You can be authentic, right? You can share your story as to why you're working with that specific arena. You can speak the vernacular. You know, these are all things that create commonalities and relationships with someone who doesn't even know you, right? So I think going going narrow and deep and and and, and niche on things like, you know, media when someone's, you know, doesn't know who you are, I, I actually think works. Um, and then from there, we basically, interestingly enough, Michael, I was going to share with you, actually, uh, an advisor friend of mine who was on your show, I think last year, long story short, uh, a couple of years ago, my wife and I, we, we moved the family to Hawaii. My dad's born and raised there. We wanted to move there for a couple of years. We just got back about 10 months ago. I was working full-time from there. This was obviously through COVID, so it worked out. You know, My neighbor, who I moved into, he had never been to the island before. He did the same thing we did, just moved the family over there for a year. We ended up staying almost a little over two years, but um, was a guy named John Hagenson. And I don't know if you remember that yeah. name or not, but he was on your show last year. And yeah. he had created a great, great advisory practice out in Arizona. And we were literally walking around the house one day and we just met in the front yard, got to talk and say, Hey, we do the same thing. I mean, this is, this is kind of hilarious, right? We're, we literally meet on an Island during COVID, right? Mm-hmm. We're the only people out there because everyone else is not even allowed on the Island. Right. And so we just spent the year together, just kind of becoming friends. To this day, he's one of my best friends. I just went to his 40th birthday party uh, with wow. like three other couples just two months ago. Um, I mean, just a great human being in general. But what, what's interesting about that story was I started realizing what he was doing and he probably alluded to this on his show when he, when he was speaking to you. And he did so much in the media world that this was right at the same time I had brought up this conversation with my partners. So this was like, to me, divine intervention. Like that's what I knew mm-hmm. repetition, like this was right. And I wanted to go down this path. So I made a joke with him, right? I mean, there's more 
things that went around this, but I was like, look, man, I'll teach you to surf if you can teach me, you know, everything you will about the media world. And we did that. And he was so gracious with me. I mean, he showed me, he hooked me up with, you know, Advisors Excel, who just does his, you know, producing at the time and, you know, uh, the podcast, the radio, the webinars, the, the seminars, the dinner workshops. I mean, this was a whole new world to me. And that's what we've been doing for the past couple of years. And obviously, when someone does it, when a, an advisor talks to a, a colleague or another advisor who can share that with them, um, it works for some and it doesn't work for others. And so what I found is the radio show worked for us to some extent, but the dinner radio, radio show, meaning the podcast or like, sorry, we AM, actually have an actual like radio, radio, radio. Yeah. Radio, radio. So we have a radio show here, um, every Sunday morning at 10 AM and KVTA 1190 in the Los Angeles area. Um, so radio and, show at 10 AM Sundays is working for you. Yeah. Yeah. Now I think when we say working, it's important to, you know, <laughs> clarify that, um, well, it's my not, next question. Like, how do you, how do you quantify measure it? and assess results? Yep. Like, yeah, how are you quantifying yeah. it? I, I would share it this way. Like, we're we're spending we were spending about two thousand dollars a month in the marketing for that in terms of being on the channel. We're now doing about a thousand. So let's call it a twelve thousand um, dollar a year endeavor. And I'm excluding my time in writing the show and preparing sure. it weekly. And you know, we've we received about two to three million dollars of AUM within that channel. So let's say it's at a one and a half percent management fee. From a margin perspective, it's at least paying for the costs of it. Yeah. And and it's creating validity in the brand, which is really what we want to do with it. Right. Um, so again, how you quantify it, it's definitely you look at some other people's numbers, it's way different. When it comes to things like the workshops we did and the dinners, the demograph here in our area, we found out is very different than the demograph in, you know, North Dakota or Arizona or Kansas or someone else. I mean, in our area in particular, in California in particular, we have um, the demographics a little bit more affluent, number one, in the LA area. That's a key thing to consider. But we also have a, not a lot of transient individuals. These are people born and raised here, second or third generation. Um, you know, in, in Arizona, I was talking with John about this originally. I mean, there's a lot of people that have moved from the Midwest or elsewhere, they're first generation. So they don't have a community maybe or, or, parents, advisors they're working with. Right. Um, and then thirdly, in the LA area, and this is subjective, but I'm going to just throw it out there is, you know, when you are on a radio, your radio host or a podcast host, or I'm an author as well with a book, like all the things that John had walked me through that are really great platforms <laughs> in LA, you know, that doesn't really matter to us out here. Like we see the Kardashians at the grocery store. You know what I mean? Like they're like, who cares, man, you wrote a book and you're on a radio show. Like that doesn't impress anybody. And I'm not saying it, it, but I think that plays in other areas. And so right. we didn't have the success that I would have liked to have in the workshops. Something I know you speak about heavily on your show, yeah. right, is that the iceberg theory, right? Yeah. The, the, we're, we're talking about some of the things on top of the water here, but you know, I had to sift through and spend a lot of money and a lot of time to realize that those areas might not work. And then ultimately the, the discernment to make the decision be like, God, this really sucks. I don't want to be a quitter in this, but it's just not working out. We've done 20 something different dinners. You know, we've had some clients come in, great people, we're happy and blessed to serve them, but it's not really becoming of scale for us as a business. The YouTube channel has actually been really unique. It, it allowed us to take the format of the podcast, bring it into the YouTube world, but the but we had to spend in that environment. We had to hire a producer. I built out a studio. I'm sitting in it right now. You know, it's it's 
And it's, it's um, going into going from audio, as I'm sure you know, into visual, like on your other show, right? It's a different format, right? It's, 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 a, it's a very different vehicle. And so that to us is going to be a, a couple pronged approach where we want to start building out the idea of monetization in YouTube. So being a, a well-known, a well-known source out there, that's not just some influencer talking out their rear end, you know, we want to actually provide experience and sound advice or, you know, and topics to discuss. The whole theme of the show is largely around finding a planner, finding an advisor, you know, understanding that you can, you don't have to go this alone. That's the whole theme of the show. And, you know, we're able to monetize that at some point and we're hoping to get there. So that's long and short, you know, a, a high level view of the media division and its start to where we are today. So, so it sounds like ultimately you've had mirroring right, like four different channels. There's the radio show. It's driving some favorable ROI, like two to three million at one and a half percent is like thirty to forty thousand dollars of gross revenue. You're spending twelve, so like not like crushing numbers out of the park or anything, but like that's a positive ROI. Like spend yeah. spend twelve to get thirty to forty is not not bad math. We're not losing money. <laughs> not losing money. Um, dinner seminars did 20 of them didn't love the like got some results but didn't love the results relative to the cost and the effort so that's dialing back yeah podcasts that's building but the narrow one is building faster than the broad one uh but you're getting genuine flow of collins and leads 10 to 12 every year is is there a do you actually track that in terms of assets or revenue like is that yeah, ten to twelve that turn into clients, or like ten to twelve that kick the tires, and like two of them turn you know, into clients. What I will say is interesting about another kind of pro in the column of of being in, in a certain niche and being branded in that world is, and this isn't an arrogant thing. It's just like when we get a referral, and it's it's a client that usually signs up. Like the the it's a it's a hmm. it's almost a foregone conclusion. Um, so it's it's just so targeted. Like if you are yeah. fire and police, and you've been listening to this podcast, and you reach out, like you pretty much probably yeah. sold yourself at this point. Pretty, exactly, and and we still we still go to bat and prove it. I mean, it's not like we just take it for granted, but absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things where it's much different than a cold call or someone from a dinner coming in. You know, you're starting from almost you have a little bit of a relationship, but you're starting from ground zero. These person that call in, not only have they been listening to you, so they become familiar with your voice, which is what the whole medium is allows you to do, which is a beautiful thing. But they also, because of my branding in that world, they also know plenty of their colleagues who either work with me or know me. So there's just an immediate connection there, which really what that means is there's an immediate, there's a inherent trust. Now we have to still earn that trust, but it's there. And so that allows us to take those calls in and move forward. And I would say my average raise every year in that specific niche is probably somewhere between 10 and $15 million in the first responder world of just that segment Wow! every year. And I would say over the past three years, in particular, pension attention, I would say upwards of a third of that has come in directly from that show. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been a very, it's been a 30% increase in my average of 15 plus years working with that group. It's been a 30% increase in those, you know, not expected, but just numbers that you can rely on year over year for nearly three years. So how did you get the podcast out there? Like, how do you get people to find it and show up in the first place to start building this 10 to $15 million a year flow? So 
and by no means am I an expert at this because obviously when you run these kind of things, I'm sure you know too, there's, there's just a lot to, there's a lot to consider, right? I've been working with first responders since 2009, 2010. So this is even like right before I even came to One Capital. So this is a practice that I've been building out for many, many years. And over that time, I just had a lot of relationships, a lot of contact information. So when I built the podcast, you know, the first thing I did was put all the contacts in there on a mailing list. And that's who I sent it to every week. And every time I went to a station and I got more contact information or someone, you know, I would just, or new client that came in, I would just add them to that list. And I think that- So you're emailing the podcast. They're not necessarily discovering it like in Apple Podcasts. No, I wouldn't say. Like they're- they're finding it because you're emailing them, hey, we're doing a podcast or you're dripping yep. the new podcast episodes to get them to notice it and and pay attention and subscribe in the first place. Presumably, yeah, if you're podcast would... listeners, at some point you hit the subscribe button, you get the new yeah. new episodes. But they're, exactly. the discovery is – you're driving the discovery by email into the segment that you've already been trying to serve. Yeah, and that's the first prong approach. But I would say what's the biggest differentiator there? is you got to remember, and this is particular to first responders, I think, uh, that's not first responders, teachers, um, athletes, think about where they live and where they work. Locker rooms, stations, close context, guys who are going through cathartic events daily. I mean, I, I always joke with guys, I mean, my clientele are guys that are kicking in doors running into danger when we all are running away from danger, right? So they're going through some stuff. So when you get an email from a guy, it's also word of mouth, right? And so going niche, again, narrow and wide, allows you to spread a little bit further because if you're doing the right thing, being a good advisor, providing the right experience, you're going to get shared simply because of good nature. So the email is going out to maybe 300 people. Those 300 people are telling their buddies, hey, you listen to this podcast and that's how it's growing. And I've seen that. I've definitely seen that because I've gotten calls in from guys where they are not on my mailing list. I can tell you that right now. I know that. So I correlate that. And then I ultimately asked them in the discovery. So yeah, you know, my captain mentioned your podcast and started listening to it. it. Happens all the time. So I'd say probably half of those calls I get in, 10 to 12 a year, have come from guys that aren't on that mailing list. They are on the mailing list now. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. So it's it's also that niche world where they, they just talk, right? Because they're in close quarters yeah. together, you know? So so you end up with radio show, dinner seminars, podcast, and now YouTube channel is like the fourth one that's scaling up. I guess you're really in three. So it sounds yeah. like dinner seminars are scaling back. So it's it's radio, podcast, and YouTube. Yeah. And I think, you know, working through some failures, I mean, I'd love to sit here and say that a lot of advisors have a lot of success with dinner workshops. And it just, our approach didn't work, I think, from those me- reasons I mentioned. Demograph is one thing. Maybe it's me, too. It also could be the advisor. Like, maybe I'm just not built for it. I mean, but um, it, it also has to do with the platform thing for us. Like, we're more of a private wealth. Like, we're not selling products or speaking of right. products. Not that I'm saying it's a bad thing. It's just not our approach. Right, right. I think a lot of people that go to those dinners are somewhat expecting that or looking for something like that. I could mm-hmm. be generalizing there, but you know, it's just a different medium. And so we spent a lot of money over a year and a half doing that. And we all as business partners said, okay, let's pull back and let's try to focus some attention elsewhere. And that YouTube channel is kind of where we're, we're focusing on. And it's, um, it's been a ride. It's it's definitely a challenge. I mean, every week I have to record, I have to write the shows. My whole, as an advisor, Michael, like my whole schedule has been completely rearranged. Of, mm-hmm. In 19 years in the financial services industry, the past three years have been nothing like anything before because I'm 
have to rearrange how we operate. You know, I have to write in order to support the, the these marketing efforts. Hundred percent. So it's a it's a commitment, and you know it's hard because you're not getting. There's no. I'm not getting paid for these things. You know, right now these are we were in the building phase. Ultimately, we're trying to get to that point, but it's um yeah, it's a build. So I so I take it like you're not necessarily seeing a lot of results yet on the YouTube. No channel ends. That's still in the growthy phase. Podcast yeah. is is the biggest one. Radio show is distant second, but positive. Yeah, and I think what we're we're keeping those because I think it first off they're fun for me to do. I really I find some some joy in it. Mm-hmm. I like kind of sitting here for you know two hours on a Tuesday, and I already getting have my writing and thoughts and getting it. Yeah, it's it's kind of out on business. Yeah, it is. It's, it's kind of therapeutic to like nerd out, you know, and, and something I love like. I always joke with people like, I've never flipped a burger before. I've been in the financial services industry since I was 16 years old. This is all I've ever done. And um, I'm a complete nerd about it. And I found that, you know, it's, yeah, therapeutic in the radio side. So doing those is just good validity in the sense of having people understand that we're also out there in our community locally. And I think that's important. Um, and, you know, what I did find about the YouTube channel, and we're seeing that recently, is that, again, speaking of the theme of today around niche play, let's say, or business segments versus, you know, overall clientele or just anyone and everyone, um, is when you go global, like with YouTube or you go macro level, you start realizing that any calls in or, or things like that, you know, it's a lot of kissing frogs. And so we're adapting even within that own model right now to creating more videos to be in monetization with YouTube. So we're actually getting paid hopefully at some point, Mm -hmm. um, you know, from the YouTube channel itself and then creating different programs like courses. And we're getting into that environment, like creating courses around how to pay off your debt and investing 101 and what to do with an inheritance and building those things that we can promote through our social media channels and through our YouTube channels. Um, so we're what I will say in all that is simply that even a firm of our size, we're still thinking like we thought 22 years ago, which is entrepreneurial and opportunistic. And we're doing it daily here at the firm. And that's what I love to share because I think it's a cool thing. And I think anyone out there, no matter what size you are, never lose sight of that. It keeps us all young, right? And I've got to ask as well, just one of the dynamics I find that comes up for a lot of firms that's start doing this where like they start building a media presence like someone someone in the firm starts driving media presence growth it's like someone's got to do the podcast or show up yeah. on the youtube channel or do the radio show yeah. so how does this work from a like intellectual property end like is is this brad's podcast or the firm's podcast or great question does do you does that matter and do you care it it yes and no we I'm very fortunate that all of us partners here, we're very close. And so we all are very in communication. Like every one of us are here are working pretty much daily. Like there's not, we don't have any old cronies sitting on the board kind of thing. So when this whole idea came up and we wanted to go to YouTube or even the podcast, really, you know, the the teams that we were working with, the media people we, we got kind of got together with, they were very much sharing like, look, you need to have a face to this. Like I wanted very much to go under no face, not, not a picture of me, just make your money matter with our logo, branded it. But obviously to be out there in the community, you have to, people want to see someone attached to it, right? So our first conversation was, you know, sharing that, um, and we all agreed, like it made sense to to promote this. And I share with them, like, if you listen to our podcast, if you listen to um, our YouTube show, you will hear loud and clear continuously in almost every episode, multiple times, 
that this is a firm show. I'm just the vessel and the host. And I wanted to take that approach simply because that's the that's the truth. I want to share it as one of the advisors, but we can't have our 30 advisors on a show. So I'm just the voice carrying um, the research, so the thoughts. So it's part theory. of getting them comfortable of like, okay, everyone, like, Brad's going to be the one who's on all the things, but don't worry. Like we're building a firm thing. We're not just spending money. So Brad can do a Brad thing. Like that's, it sounds like that was part of the, it was the buy-in you have to do when you've got multiple partners and you're trying to get everyone comfortable with the fact that, uh, we're going to do a media thing and not every partner is going to be the face. It it was. And we, and you know what, I think again, back to a little while ago, it really, and I, I never thought about it this way, but honestly, Michael, the way we're just fortunate, I think. We don't have the egos that a lot of firms do. And I've always saw that, myself included. Like, we all just want the best. I mean, obviously, we all have our own competitiveness and we want to be that. But, like, I've shared with people, like, look, if anyone wanted to jump in and take this, like, I would be fine with that. <laughs> it is not easy. I mean, being on camera every week, being having your voice out there and writing, I enjoy it from a therapeutic standpoint. I was saying on the radio show, but like, it's not easy. It's a whole practice management shift. So the aesthetics of it might look appealing, you know, um, the vanity of it might look appealing, but I can promise you just like your iceberg theory. And I love that. It's like, dude, there is, you're seeing the top part there. Trust me. You want all the work, go for it, bud. I'm, I'm, you take it, man. So so share with us a little bit more, like what's the, what's the beneath the surface reality of sustaining this kind of content effort? I mean, you've, you've mentioned more than once now, like, you know, you, you, uh, it's really been a material shift to like your your practice, your like weekly life. So yeah. what what exactly changed? Like what does that look like now? Well, starts off Sunday night. Um, you know, just even my own family dynamic changed. We put the kids down. Um, you know, we'll head to bed and I'll typically spend Sunday nights for about an hour, hour and a half just researching some ideas and things I've saved throughout the week, different articles, preparing the ideas for the show. Monday hits. I typically do my, I do client review meetings or a discovery meeting on Monday is a very typical Monday. And then Monday night, I'll kind of wrap up what I'm going to start recording on Tuesdays. So Tuesdays is really where I come in the studio. I block my calendar out basically from eight to noon and I will start with the podcast because it's the shorter form. So I will, you know, create the content, if you will, of what I'm trying to share. And I usually do it out of like a rubric standpoint because I've been doing this long enough to be able to be free form in how I speak. So I don't have to have it scripted and I will basically share the podcast and I do it somewhere between 15 to 20 minutes is our podcast. I will create the intro and the outro. So I'll use the same podcast for both the make your money matter show and the pension attention. I will change the vernacular if they're I'm speaking about a deferred compensation plan versus a 401k, for example, but that becomes the audio. Um, I then save that package that off, send it to our producer. Immediately after that, I begin the radio show, which is, if you ever looked at the two in the same week, they're the same content, the same general ideas, but the obviously the radio show is four 13-minute segments, which is different than one 15 to 20-minute podcast. So I have to break it down. And with the right. radio program, as I'm likely you've seen, it's a different approach, right? There's a radio yeah. voice, and then there's the podcast voice, right? So you Radio have to voice. And yeah. Hey, this is Brad Bear with me. You know, it's a different <laughs> voice. And I had to learn that. Right. So you start there. And then it's also the radio is very CTA driven, very calls to action. You know, right. you know, if you're listening right now, give us a call, you know, those kind of things, because that's what that's a typical radio program. So right. 
I kind of record that. I usually finish right around noon, package it up, send it to the producer, and that's the radio show. Typically, what I'll do is I'll go to lunch, kind of take a break. I'll do a phone call or two. That afternoon, I will come back in the studio and I will take the same thing I spoke about and I'll break them down into three to four, five-minute YouTube shows. So I'll take the same thing I talked about, whether it's like, um, you know, talking about ways to, you know, avoid market, you know, volatility or, or things like that. And I'll break that down to like, there's three things I want to focus on and anyway, bring it down to five minutes. I will record that. I will send it to my producer and he will transcribe it. And Wednesdays from 12 to three, we record every week Wednesday on the YouTube show. And that recording is a scripted uh, recording that comes from my audio recording from Tuesday. And the, the three recordings we do on Wednesdays show up on our Saturday, Monday, and Wednesday show releases. And every Wednesday, we do a new batch and so on and so forth. Now, you can see just right there, three years ago, before all this was happening, it was just a normal advisory week. It's about 10 hours a week. You know, I was going to say, like that, that's adding up to oh, yeah. a, a, good, a good eight plus hours in a, in a week to get all that done. And I'm struck, and that's even, that's with the efficiency that, uh, you know, of, of the content repurposing, like you're taking one idea and, and just like packaging your thoughts different ways. Like, here's how I talk about this idea in a 20 minute podcast. Here's how I talk about this idea in four 13 minute radio segments. Here's how I talk about this idea in four, five minute YouTube shows. So the, and that took time to learn, but yeah, now in doing that as an advisor, I always come to grips with this saying, okay, if I do this, which I do feel is right, broadly for more clients to better serve our current clients, is this going to affect my clientele? Is this going to affect my practice? And that's always been a fear of mine. And so back to a comment I made earlier, we as a firm came together and said, we want to make sure we scale this appropriately for your practice. So that was also the same time period where we brought in Jeremy White, who's our senior um, client service associate who works directly with me. He has been instrumental. He's basically my own COO in helping me operate daily my practice management right? I'm still the advisor. I always will be with my clients, but he helps me schedule. He helps me, um, you know, paperwork operationally answers. He's a great advisor in of himself. He's a 20 year veteran in this business, but he doesn't want to be a direct advisor, right? So finding the right personnel to help with this was key. I mean, he's a key part to this whole thing for me. And so again, scaling yourself internally, making sure that end of the day, I've always said this, my last client is always my best client. So anytime I meet with a new client or I'm doing a new endeavor, it's really important to me that the client who entrusted me yesterday has the same services I said I would do always. And that is a whole business practice management we all have to take as advisors, right? To keep the same level of service, grow, but grow to make sure everybody's growing, including your clients. So it's some, you know, it's, it's, it's 25% of my, or more of my work week is, heavily involved with this. And, um, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's some work. So, so as you think of it overall, I, I guess, Ms. Curious, is there a, is there like a, a marketing ROI target that you guys have in the, in the long run? Like, you know, for, for every, you know, $10,000 of marketing spend, ultimately we want to get this much in revenue or we want to get like this much in assets to make it a, a good marketing spend that we would want to sustain. Is there like a, a target or a break even you know, that I, you're aiming for? Yes and no. I think, you know, having, you know, KPIs withstanding, I think we go going more focused back to our our 30% profit margin. I think we just run the numbers that way. And anything we put out, we're trying to ultimately get to a profit margin that makes some sense. I, I will say this, one thing in here, when you know you're putting out 
money ahead of time because you have to invest in this platform because it's a newly formed vertical, if you will, you understand that there's also a timeline that we have to adhere to. So we've all kind of agreed to a three to five year timeline to understand like that's kind of our, our break even analysis, if you will, of okay. we're okay collecting smaller amounts with more going out with operating expenditures being higher than they would be over time, ultimately getting to this attrition, you know, as we start building these, these, these channels, if you will. So okay. I think the way I'd answer that is we still want the 30% profit margin. So we're still adhering to that, but we're also adhering to that in this world of more of a, of a time constraint, right? Of how long is it going to take us to get to, no different than how we look at a stock, right? A price of yep, you know, yep. E multiple, right? Same difference. So it's, it's focusing that way, just the same. So you've been at, at one capital through just a huge growth cycle. I, I, I think you, it was less than 10 team members when you, when you got there more than a decade ago, as you said earlier, like you're closing in a hundred team now. Uh, so you, you, you've, you've basically lived a 10 X growth cycle in the, in the business. So I'm curious is what what surprised you the most about what happens and what changes as as an advisory firm scales up that much? Oh, good question. What surprises me the most? Um, you know, I'd answer how I want to answer that I think would have to do with our own unique story. What surprises me the most is that and I don't mean this as like I'm I'm shocked. I just mean what I, it's a good surprise is that everyone who was here when I came here is still here. And I think if you think about that, if you grow to that extent extent. If anyone who's been out there with experience with this, you've seen different things, right? You might see people get disgruntled or not work for them and move off or um, people taking the money and saying, okay, we built it. Now I want to go kind of thing or whatever it might be. And I think that what I am surprised by in a good way, like in 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 a really cool way for us is we're all still here just as hungry as we were when I came involved, you know, 13 years ago, or we're just as hungry as we were when we formed the firm in 2001. And maybe not the answer I might have been looking for in the surprise aspect of it, but I'm, I'm, I would say I'm grateful for that. I think we all are. And there's no end in sight. Like we have a, you know, we got a healthy core of partners ready to rock and roll. And it's, it's been a, it's been a fun ride. It's been a, a lot of learning curves. I mean, there's been verticals that we tried to build that did not work out. And, and there's some surprises every well, year. What were some of the ones that ended out on the, the yeah. proverbial cutting room floor. Oh man, one that sticks out. Oh my gosh, um, was uh, we created a vertical called One Performance Group, and it was dedicated to serving car dealerships. And through some relationships we had, we were actually uh, in 2015 for about a couple of years. We were actually the lead sponsor car for the um, IMSA Porsche GT4 Cayman, uh, just through some relationships we had. And we found a couple individuals there, and um, you know we decided to hire one individually. Uh, through that world, focus on car dealerships. And this is a great example of not only was that the wrong play for us because it wasn't in our bailiwick, if you will, but then it's also an example of hiring the right people. We hired the wrong person for sure. So it was a eight month endeavor. I was very involved with it. I built the platform with the guy and eight months later, he just basically left and it was, it just never worked out. And, you know, all in, including time and everything, we probably sunk in Hundred fifty, two hundred thousand dollars into that between his his draw, let alone my time, just business expenses. I mean, it was just you know. So 
that one dramatically sticks out to me. We all joke about it still. I mean, it's fun to have, you got to have some light about it, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. No one's it's the not, only way you can console yourself. through. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it burned, it burned us because it was, it was a bummer. I mean, there was, there's more to that story, but like internally that was kind of a bummer just for the, the individual himself. But like, you know, it's, it's a part of doing business. You got to put yourself out there. And again, so. So in, in retrospect, like what did you, what had you guys missed that you didn't, you know, you didn't, you didn't see the problem coming. Uh, the red flags on the individual. I actually firmly believe that that segment still will hold true. And, and by the way, one of our great relationships, a, a good friend of mine, a client of ours, you know, we, we work with his dealership. I mean, the, they are, that's a great example of their business owners, right? They just happen to own car dealerships. So we took a client who could just be a business owner and took it more granular and said, I want to focus on business owners who are business owners of car dealerships, right? And so our retirement plan solutions platform can work great in that camp. I mean, they have a lot of issues inside those places that they don't realize, you know, in their consortium, they have a, a Nissan dealership with a Lexus dealership and a BMW, and they kind of all are intertwined. They're not following affiliated servicing group relationships with their ERISA governed plans. They're all out of whack on compliance. Like there was definitely a need there. But the biggest thing I realized there was we, we, I think we neglected the signs of the individual that we hired to promote and run cool. that platform. So this is a great example of hire the right people, right? Well, and, and invest your time in the, the person. They might be the right now and it might seem great, but really spend the time. And we learned that and we've done that since then. And it was a good learning lesson for us. But that was the big takeaway was the person I think was the wrong endeavor. So are there particular like red flags of, you know, I, I wish I'd paid more attention to this? Um, you know, in that specific case, the red flags actually came from individuals we knew who were saying, you know, uh, we've heard some history from him from other areas. And these are people we know, too. Yeah, We just disregarded them. So in that particular case, it was more that. So, it, okay. you know, again, hindsight's always, you know, clear in 2020, right? At the time, it, it was all seemed to us a little bit hearsay and it was and he always debunked it. You know, it, it was just a you kind of had to live through it. It was hard to spot it right away. But obviously, as you know, when it comes to fruition, you're like, well, that was pretty obvious when you look back at it kind of thing. Um, so, it, yeah, that was a unique one in that regard. But I think if you ask the right questions and you're earnest about what you're trying to do with a certain vertical or niche play, and you're talking to the person doing it, I think organizing your questions and asking kind of their background in it. And I think talking with one or two people who've worked with them matters because we should have either a listened to the one or two people that we did reach out to, to talk about this person before we brought him on. We either asked the wrong people or we didn't listen to uh, the advice given to the people we should have listened to. So that was our, our issue there. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Oh man, uh, the low point for me personally on that journey was eight months of sacrificing my practice individually to give my attention to someone who the entire eight months was here, was looking for another job and actually leveraging our platform as his title here <laughs> to find that other job. And we found that out because when he left, we had obviously copies of his emails. And for like six months of the eight months, he was basically sending out his resume using his title and experience and grossly overestimating his time with us. I mean, just being negligent. And I was just like, man, this human being is not who I thought he was kind of thing. So that was, that was kind of a, you know, a oh, kick in the stings. That was, it was, it was a tough one, man. I, and you know, I, that, that bummed me out because I was the one directly involved trying to build it. And the red, you know, to be fair though, the, the, and this is a learning lesson for me personally, the red flags that I mentioned were there before we 
started it, it was also there throughout the eight months. I mean, I just, I was always dragging him around. I'm like, why am I doing the dragging here? Like, this is, you know, this is your thing, right? Um, and I've since taken that. I've, I've definitely used that. I, I'm no longer like, if I have a certain business segment that I know we can attach and I'm bringing someone in, I will not do the chasing. Like, it's just, it's either you are or you aren't. Like, you either want it or you don't. Like, I believe in that, mm. right? And I learned that, I think, through that lesson. And that was just a bummer. And then, and, you know, personally, I was, he was in a tough situation. I was personally helping him out. So I lent him money and he basically, I've never seen it since. So, uh, you know, oh, man, yeah, it was just, you know, it's just live and learn kind of stuff. My wife and I had a fun conversation about that. She was not too happy about that one, you know? Um, but I, you know, I'm an empathetic person and I really wanted to help that individual. And I had the idea that if I can help them with their personal situation as an employee, yeah. um, and we, we're definitely like that as a firm, we do that for the right people. That's just one that he just was not in the right place. I'm not saying he's a bad person. I'm just saying he just was going through a lot of stuff that he was not clear yeah. to be able to do what we needed him to do. So what else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you 10, 15 years ago as you were getting started down the, down the road with the firm? You know, I actually think what I would answer here is really the theme of today. Um, I, like many who might be listening to this, always feared going narrow and deep and and becoming mm-hmm. too niche. Still to this day, I carry some of that. If I were to talk to myself 15 years ago and know what I know now, I would very clearly say all those other extracurricular endeavors you tried to do to quote unquote diversify yourself that really none of them, I mean, some of them did, but not a lot of them panned out, especially as well as what you know my niche practice has been. I would say avoid all of those and just go after it. Seriously, because I, I do feel whatever you do, don't diversify. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like that's that's why it's so hard for us, right? Like when that's, when that's the message that comes out of it, it's like, yeah, but Brad, you do realize we're financial planners. Yeah, exactly, exactly. As I say that, I'm like, and and that's why I'm not like I definitely don't lose sleep over it by any means. But you know, if you can have a crystal ball, like I mean, I think look, let's be fair, right? If we talked about investing world and we talk about diversification, which we know works. But if we right. knew what was going to happen over the next 15 years, we wouldn't have to be diversified because we would just go after right. it, right? That's like the crystal ball theory. But same thing here, right? But I mean, I, I don't, I don't, um, I don't regret. I don't have any regrets on all I did because I learned a lot. Even that right. one performance group scenario, I, you know, you just you learn a lot. And I think it's, you know, I always say this, you know, God doesn't waste a hurt, so He's going to bring you through stuff to, you know, have you learn. It's up to you if you want to learn or not. You can mope and gripe about it, but it's actually a good thing if you choose to look at it right. And, you know, I, I firmly believe that if I had done that and I hadn't diversified, knowing what I know, if I could do this, which is totally a dream world here, I feel like I could probably have twice as many clients and assets and relationships, I would call it, than I do now, because my focus would be very, very specific. And um, I also, at this time, know what I know about our firm and, you know, we're, this is the right place for that. And at that time, it was a new thing. I mean, these guys, it's remember. These four guys, I met them at a bagel shop in Calabasas, California as a 22-year-old with $3 million under management saying, I have this idea, this clientele I would like to serve, and I had to walk them through the specifics of it. And to their credit, they totally took a chance because they were, I'm sure, looking at it like, yeah, this is probably not going to work out. But I made it my mission to make sure it did. And um, we still keep that same, you know, again, entrepreneurial and opportunistic environment out for all of our advisors. And I, I like sharing that story as an advisor because we have a lot of advisors. I mean, look, I've lived this. These guys have, I mean, all of us, and I, I do it now for our advisors as a partner here. And I'm 
grateful for that because I've, I, I was that person. I, I literally was that person. I mean, I broke as a joke living at my dad's house, you know, uh, having this idea and, you know, being a punk 22 year old at the time I had, you know, four, five or six years in the financial services industry, you know, three or four years at a broker dealer and a couple of years at a bank in high school, you know, and I knew I wanted to do this. I just needed the right place to be able to do it. And, um, God was I right. So I'm very grateful for that. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors coming into the industry today? Wow. Good question, Michael. So I just had a I just had coffee with a guy three weeks ago. He's actually a fellow dad of a kid at my school, um, 35 years old, a year younger than me. We were having this conversation. He's been in the business for about three years. And I, you're, I, I literally just said this to him. So that's why I'm bringing this conversation up. He's obviously in his three years. And for anyone out there who has this kind of tenure right now, you've lived through a lot in the pandemic. And he literally started his practice in like January of 2020. So you can imagine his whole, right? Yeah, that was a little stressful. The poor guy, I mean, his marketing endeavors. And I just, I saw in his eyes in 45 minutes of a coffee, anyone out there who's a good human with integrity, with morals, who has a, you know, who, who just has a love and passion for the financial world and planning and all of its greatness that you can do, but also just seeing the joy in helping someone who doesn't know this world that well, just, you got to hang on. You got to find the right place. Cause if you're having part of his issues was he's not in the right, not in the right house. We're actually in conversation with him right now to potentially bring him in because a lot of the issues happen to be with where you're at one way or the other, not, not all the problems, right? It's not always someone else's problems, but it's, it's, it's important to so yeah. find, find the right place. Find the right place. If you're not the right place, like find the right place, like, get out and of I, a bad place and Find a find a good yeah. place. And I would say this, right? For all of us advisors who come in the business wide-eyed, yeah, look, you can absolutely potentially find that one client with $15 million. But the reality is it's 10 years. I always tell people it's 10 years. You will tread water likely for 10 years. I know how dramatic that may sound because you're going to be investing in your business. If you have some AUM in the first year, you'll be reinvesting that to go and market or other things. It's To me, I, I use the 10-year rule with my younger guys. I say, look, if you can weather it, and sustain yourself and tread water for 10 years, this business will reward you after that point. Again, I, that's subjective time period, but that's what I've, I've shared from experience. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and just one of the themes I've always observed, just the, the word success means very, very different things to different people. And so you've had this wonderful growth path with the firm as a, as a partner in building the practice. Uh, and so the, the, the business has had a, a wonderful journey. How do you define success for yourself at this point? I have answered that in what this business has done and all the work I've done for it. You can look at the success of a, of a practice, of being a partner in a $5.3 billion firm, um, and overseeing a couple hundred million dollars personally. People would define it that way. I actually define it from an independent standpoint. I have the time to create, which I love. I have the time to spend with my family, go pick up my son at three o'clock from school. I'm taking him to stick time and go play hockey today at two o'clock. I, that to me is how I define success. And I didn't know that going into it years ago, mm. but I'm very grateful that that's how I define success is as I always say on our show and to my clients, money buys time. That's it. It's a, it's a tool for buying freedom and time. And that's how I personally have defined success for myself is being able to afford the time uh, to create, do things, in, invest in things like, you know, again, recreating the practice or different verticals 
and being able to do things extracurricular that keeps me motivated, like spending time with family and I like to surf, so I go out and do that. And that's big, um, a big part of my life. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Brad, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.